Hey everybody, my name is Richard Roger. I'm the CEO of Voxgig.com, a little startup that I founded to help developer relations move along in the world. And we talk about getting the vibe right, getting to the heart and soul of developer relations. Welcome. This is the MongoDB Podcast. I'm Shane McAllister. And as ever, we're glad to have you tune in and join us. In this episode, we deep dive into developer relations, which, obviously, as a lead in the developer relations team here at MongoDB, is a subject very dear to my own heart. However, Richard is a serial tech founder, and so, in our conversation, we encompass not only DevRel, but we also deep dive into his cavernous experience, his prior companies, his insightful thoughts on building communities, and pivoting his VoxGig business during COVID. We examine how, in Richard's view, DevRel is all about creating a vibe that a company cares. And we go down the rabbit hole of AI and large language models and what that means for tech companies in the future. Speaking of the future, do you know that MongoDB.local is coming to over 30 cities globally this year? Starting in May and running all the way through to November, we are most likely coming to a city near you. So join us at a mongodb.local to connect with MongoDB experts, meet fellow users building the next big thing, and be among the first to hear the latest announcements. To learn more about mongodb.locals, visit mongodb.com forward slash events. And with that, let's get on with the show. Welcome, Richard, to the MongoDB podcast. It's great to have you on board. For our audience, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do, and we'll dive a little bit into your background before we get into the meat of this episode, which, from my context, is super interesting because it's all about DevRel. But we'll talk a little bit about yourself first. Hey, Shane. Yeah, thank you very much. It's great to be on. Long-time user of MongoDB. So, Always good yeah, to hear. It's been critical on a couple of projects over the years for me. I'm a unemployable startup founder <laughs> person. Uh, don't take it structured well, so I keep on having to start companies. Yeah. A couple of those in your history have been very successful. Hopefully we'll delve into yeah, those as yeah. well too. And relevant to, the, to learning how to do developer relations. Right now, the current startup is called VoxGig.com. And we focus on helping people execute their developer relations activities. So if you don't know what developer relations is, then we can get into that. If you do, right, it's code, community, content, and all that good stuff. We have a wide and varied audience for the podcast. So I do, even if they do know what developer relations are, I want to re-emphasize, given my own agenda, the importance of developer relations within any company. But tell us, prior to VoxGig, as you said, you're an unemployable serial company founder. Tell us about the other companies you've been involved in, please, Richard. Sure. I, I ended up working in the 90s for a web agency, rather mm -hmm. at random. No idea what I wanted to do at the end of college and ended up doing an internship because it was indoor work with no heavy lifting. It was <laughs> okay. much Fair better enough. than the warehouse I had worked in the previous summer. And learned the business there about dealing with clients and projects and all that sort of stuff. Web development was way easier in the 90s. 
you just use JavaScript mm. directly. It didn't have to be transpiled or anything. I you feel use really Notepad and text editor and things like that as well too, right? You didn't have to use. Oh all these no, I'm sorry, the text editors. We'll, we'll get into that later. Fair enough. Uh, we'll get into that. The I really feel for junior devs these days because to just get a website up and running, it's so much harder. There's way more to learn. And I ended up working in Germany for a couple of years. And then myself and my wife came back from Germany and mm -hmm. decided both of us with a 18-month-old baby to start freelance businesses. Having an 18-month baby is very conducive to starting yeah, why not? freelance businesses why not? between a couple. That business ran for a little while. It was I was selling software components. So my very first business was selling to developers. Okay. Uh, and I learned the importance of having great docs and all that sort of stuff. I built my own forum. I spent more time building the website and the customer engagement infrastructure than the actual product. The product was a CSV parser for Java. That was it. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun experience. Unfortunately, I had to take a little time out because I fell ill and I had to shut down that business. And then I eventually ended up working for the Waterford Institute of Technology doing commercialization. And it's now the Southeastern Technological University. And they had a really great research group there called the TSG, the Commercialized mm -hmm. Research. And that's where the Fee Henry experience came from. We were building a system that generated mobile apps. Mm -hmm. I also have this other interest in generative programming, where you write programs that write programs. Uh, that's always been like a fun little programming hobby of mine. And that kind of became a business. And it was spun out and it was eventually sold to Red Hat. Uh, yes, I remember that. That was the first time I met you, I think, was back in the Feed Henry. Yeah, days. yeah. I have a terrible startup sob story about all that sort of stuff. So it was wonderful. We built a software development, an online software development platform. You could code, all that sort of stuff. And again, it was focused on developers. My theme is building here inadvertently, right? But my startup sob story there is that I ended up for personal reason, reasons having to reduce my workload. And then I ended up co-founding Nearform at Kian Modding in 2012. But I was so skint at the time that I sold my Feed Henry shares. Okay. <laughs> to pay the mortgage. <laughs> uh, I think we've all done things like that before. Yeah. So it, at the end, I'm all right. But uh, yeah, startups are fun and never fair. Uh, I think for some people anyway, things that you have to get out of your system. Yes, yes. Perhaps well, too. <laughs> yeah, and I think also there's something for the youthful. You need a lot of time. You need a ton of energy. You said you started freelancing and then obviously into Feed Henry when you had small children. It is hard as well juggling that side oh, of your life plus a startup at the same time. I think if anybody wants to do it, I think it's that itch is never going to disappear. I think at some point it's there. Whether it's better to do it when you're more youthful and full of energy, but broke or don't need so much money to get by, or later on in life when you've made money elsewhere and you've got the knowledge and the accrued kind of understanding of how to go about these things properly. I don't know which is the best way to go. Having done my own and yeah. been now in MongoDB, I'm getting to see both sides of the world. I was always in startups before before I came across oh, MongoDB. Oh, okay. You have, the, you have the itch as well. I believe <laughs> it's easier in your 20s. You don't, I'm a dad and I fall asleep on the sofa. <laughs> Literally, that's my aim in life is to fall asleep on the sofa. So you, Feed Henry was about essentially tools and platform to build 
mobile apps. Yes. Nearform, what was what were you so doing in Nearform? Nearform, the original idea was something like Firebase, the sort of online database for mobile apps, which was Keynes actually he was he came up with the idea. But in order to actually survive, because we had no fun, we, we had to become a consultancy and just do consulting projects. Um, it's a tried and tested path having to do consultancy work while getting your oh, yeah. startup up and yeah. running. Absolutely. On this side of the Atlantic, in a way, you often have to do that, especially in those days, right? Up until that point, although I've been building products for developers, I've never really understood the value of community and engagement with the community. I was, I'm fairly hardcore introvert. I like to do my coding, <laughs> <laughs> speaking to people. If I go to an event, by the end of the event, I'm completely exhausted. Um, okay. I have to recharge. Now, it's interesting to observe somebody like my co-friend at the time, Ian, who is completely opposite. So some people gain energy from that type of interaction. And what I learned in the early days of Nearform from Kean, and we also had Eamon Leonard was, we were lucky to have him as a sort of informal advisor. And Eamon really put us on to the whole community thing. He suggested at some point that we should do a meetup. We were getting into Node.js at the time, and we founded the Dublin Node.js meetup. I was totally skeptical, right? Kane was like, hey, we've got to do this. we got to do this. It's going to be great fun. Um, and it turned out to be completely amazing and the secret of the success of the company. That's interesting because I think the community element is, and we'll get into this when we discuss a lot more about DevRel, the community element isn't necessarily understood from company to company, the importance of it. But you're saying it was critical to the oh, success of Nearform. Absolutely. Of all the things around developer relations and engaging with developers as your customers or influencers or whatever, the community stuff is absolutely critical. We took that meetup and then used it to launch a conference. Mm -hmm. right. And once again, I was hugely skeptical, never done any of this sort of stuff, wasn't terribly into people as such. And we borrowed money to mm. run a conference, which is something you should never do. It's <laughs> completely nuts. In fact, I think the way that we did it was with a tractor loan. So if oh, you're wow. a farmer, okay. you get a tractor yeah. loan is where you don't, have, you don't pay back every month. You pay back in installments when the harvest comes in. Okay, so, so the, you get a break, but it yeah. still has to be paid back. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it was like 50K or something. With a conference, conferences are terrible. It's really easy to lose a lot of money, even if you sell out on tickets, because flying speakers around and hiring venues and all sorts of crazy stuff. And you only get the money in sponsorship afterwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're upfronting everything and you're taking all of the risk and you're, you're essentially a large build it and they will come mentality yeah. towards yeah. running. Where did you run it? It was in the Guinness storehouse in the first year. And we, we didn't even have event insurance. We didn't even know there was a thing that, like that that you could get. We had, we had a wonderful speaker who was doing IOT stuff, running a smoke machine from their raspberry pi or something and it went horribly wrong and nearly set off the fire alarms okay so imagine there was 200 attendees most of them with really expensive macs open and the sprinkler system <laughs> so i still had this burnt into my mind the image of the i think the security guard running across and flicking all the switches on the fire suppression system to turn it off as this fake smoke billows up so here's the thing about developer relations how do you convince senior leadership that's malarkey 
that sort of nonsense. Malarkey being a purely technical term, same as shenanigans, obviously. Shenanigans and malarkey. But I can tell you now that out of that conference, literally two weeks later, we closed a 100K deal. Wow, okay. On 10 days. Yeah. I can tell you that uh, when we ran the conference again, I'm not entirely sure which year it was, one of the attendees worked for a very large management consultancy that became an anchor client later. Right. So this is okay. the other challenge of developer yes. relations. You often hear people talking about measurement and how many people are reading your blogs and what's your impact and what are your metrics. Welcome to my world. Just to keep on that, I suppose, the, the conferences and the lag between trying to figure out the return on investment of this versus I got that first 100K customer. I got that first consultancy. I, I think my personal view is the serendipity of conferences is amazing. It's not about the talks. It's not necessarily about who has the biggest stand, et cetera, et cetera. It could be simply as who was behind you in the line to get lunch. The hallway Um, track, right? Yeah. It's actually the most valuable. Yes. Yeah, totally. The the hallway track. And as you say, that is a hard one to convince some companies about too, because it's not as measurable. And if, you know, DevRel in MongoDB is under marketing. So they, marketing as a whole, do a lot more things that are pretty much instantaneously measurable. Yeah. I don't think DevRel, in essence, is instantaneously measurable. There are indicators, but it's not instantaneously measurable what the outcome of that effect yes, would be. Right? And yet, Shane, here's the thing, right? If you asked me to identify companies that were made by developer relations and the way that they engage with developer communities, MongoDB and Stripe would be in the top five. I personally have chosen to use MongoDB because the documentation spoke to me and I grokked it. And Stripe mm-hmm. as well, right? A fabulous documentation. And not just that the documentation was good, that the vibe from the company was that they cared about developers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad we're in that top five. Uh, that's always good. I wouldn't like to be outside of that. I showed you head. guys when you couldn't even do transactions. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I put a national newspaper live on MongoDB in 2011. Right, you guys were completely rubbish. <laughs> a few things happened after that. Yeah, we acquired some technology along the way that instantly gave us some huge lift in, in what we could and do. The developer experience was so great that it didn't mm-hmm. happen, right? Um, yeah. I don't know where that fits into the package. Where did you first become involved? Where did you hear about MongoDB or how did you know about MongoDB? Was it at an event? Was it through people that you know in the tech space here in Ireland? Or how did that come about? Do you remember, Richard? It was, it was a reaction to the enterprise engagements that we did with Feed Henry. Mm-hmm. A lot of our customers were telcos and a lot of the installations and setup, you had to run on Oracle. Mm-hmm. You had to run on WebLogic. Okay. So the, these real heavyweight old school enterprise systems. Massively prescriptive and very hard to work Massively, with. Massively, yeah. right? And yeah. very difficult to manage the software development process. In Feed Henry, we had this thing, we had a two week cycle. We had this thing called Merge Mondays, right? We were using okay. Subversion. <laughs> At least it wasn't Fridays. Anyone <laughs> deploying anything on Fridays, not. Monday's fine. You've Monday's, got another four days to fix it, right? Exactly, exactly. And I remember a good colleague of mine, John Rizel, he had the job of merging everything, right? All these different horrible branches with Subversion. The database always gave us such horrible trouble and migrations and all that sort of stuff. So I, when I ended up doing a couple of exploratory startups that never really went anywhere in 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. needed rapid execution. I really got into the lean startup and all that sort of stuff. 
which is why I chose Node. And Mongo just went with that because, hey, I don't have to decide the schema ahead of time. I'm going to discover the schema as I build, which is still one of the huge strengths of Mongo, right? We hear that all the time, particularly from the startups that we talk to. We have a very good startup program. They get credits, they get technical support, they get some mentoring. One of the first questions from them is, I don't know the full functions and features of what my product's going to be. And it's similarly, we do it on the flip side as well, too, with some of the larger customers that we have. We are still doing design reviews with them about how they've structured things as well, too. So it works both ways. Yeah. So I suppose just returning to the topic of community, And this issue of how do you justify the expense and the engagement when it isn't really measurable, and yet the benefits are clearly there. There's a wonderful startup at the moment, which has just been launched by one of my former colleagues in Earform, a guy called Matteo Kalina. That's called Platformatic. He's the guy behind the Fastify node API server, and he's doing the whole build in public thing. Oh wow! So he okay. does like a, he does a Twitch stream, yeah. all that stuff, and it, it, Matteo is a wonderful. He's Italian, so he's a wonderful conference speaker. Deeply engaged in the open source committee, I think he ended up on the Node kind of core contributors board or whatever. But as a result of all those years of community engagement, now that he's doing his own startup, it's mm-hmm. the audience is there. You don't have to spend lots of money on traditional marketing and you don't end up in that situation where you're worried about customer acquisition costs and LTVs and all that because you have to pour so much money into marketing to just to just to fill the top of the funnel. You don't have a funnel, you have this kind of cloud of particles that are bumping into you all the time. And if you're selling to developers and your product is developer oriented, I think that works much better. I think that's a much greater way to get that word of mouth going. Yeah, look, we would have, it's not a mantra per se. Sometimes when we're discussing initiatives, developers don't like to be sold to. They don't like filling in a form to get access to a PDF or get access to a webinar or join something. They just want to get the content. And I think that having that sphere of where you you are a developer in amongst a developer community and you're part of that community and Somebody who's giving back to that community is a really good head start. I know that we spoke about Nearform, but that's not the current gig. The current gig is called Fox Gig. When did that happen and what motivated you to start it? And how has it changed over the last couple of years for you? Tell us, for those not familiar, what Fox Gig is all about. Yeah. So it turns out to be really hard to run a consultancy and build product at the same time. The DNA of a company is set one way or the other, and different types of people can do different things. And I always had this dream of doing the traditional SaaS startup, getting into Y Combinator and getting a Series A and all that fun stuff. It's not necessarily fun, though, at the no, it seems I fun. Heard. No, it isn't at all. <laughs> and I wasn't getting any younger, so I felt I better do it now, and I'll take all the stuff I've learned about it. So I ended up speaking at a lot of conferences, mm-hmm. And really, scales fell from my eyes about developer relations and engaging with communities and all that sort of stuff. And then I realized, even as a speaker, trying to plan my speaking calendar and CFPs and schedule that stuff and pick the right conferences, uh, measure the effects out of conferences in some way, trying to run a content calendar and just finding almost no tooling 
to help execute that activity. For about 2018, we put together the MVP, which was a search engine for technology conferences. We built out SaaS tooling to help developer advocates do their jobs, all that sort of stuff. But it was very focused on in-person events. We had tooling to help people run booths and do lead capture, all that sort of stuff. We had some super fun customers, Disney streaming services, as they were called at the time, now Disney Plus. And a lot of it was about recruiting as well as sales. We were having lots of fun on March 1st, 2020. We were pretty sure we'd got product market fit. It was looking good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something uh, happened around then as well too, right? Yeah. Uh, so 2020 was an interesting year. We had to pivot hard, which is everybody says, oh, pivot. And Slack is the greatest pivot ever because I think they were making, they're trying to make a game. They just took the chat engine out of it and turned it into a company. Not so easy in practice to pick the right pivot. We did all sorts of things around no code and online events, all sorts of fun stuff. Okay. I got to do a lot of really fun computer science coding. Qlang.org, check it out. It's really cool. We'll put that in the show notes. We do now. So COVID put a kibosh on what was steadily growing for you and getting large clients. So the pivot, tell us about what happened then. In in a way, the pivot is a 360 back to the original business, but much more focused on developer relations rather than technology events. So whereas the first version of the product would have had tooling to run CFPs and tooling to run to help run events it was more geared towards event professionals. We started like meetups in Dublin and London for event professionals, all that sort of stuff. It was very focused on the people who made conferences happen. Which was, was in, in fairness, the as we spoke about earlier, the way people met, yeah. particularly in the developer world. Like you could literally traverse the globe, picking the developer language of your choice and moving from conference to conference. And it's a massive business. And I can fully understand why that was a draw to you at the start to put that tooling in place for those organizers. And we did the, we did all the pitches and the VC pitches. We had a wonderful total addressable market. It was a huge number. <laughs> there was wonderful consolidation going on. There's a company called Cvent that was buying everybody up and said, oh, they're going to acquire us. Right. So it's all wonderful stuff. But now we've taken a smaller segment of that idea, just developer relations, because the thing I ended up noticing was that developer relations kept going during COVID. Mm. And it actually didn't matter so much. There was a lot more to it than just in-person events. So it became clear that actually what we had could be adjusted, could be put to use in this segment of the original space. And then another thing happened, which is that there's a lot of companies... So you've heard this expression, right? Software is eating the world. Mm -hmm. Actually, old hat these days. (laughs) Every company is becoming a technology company and every company has to have developers and has to have APIs and SDKs into their Mm -hmm. stuff. And that means you have companies whose founders may not have had experience with the whole idea of developer communities and how to sell to developers and how to engage with them. You know, because traditional marketing, as you say, doesn't work. You can't no. sell to developers. You no, expect not at me all. to fill in email to get a PDF. No thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where's your GitHub account? With a lot of our clients, we have to find a really polite and friendly way to save them. Yeah, you have a GitHub account. That's really good. Let's see what we can do with it because it's 
a wasteland at the moment. There's, yeah. you know, that, there's, there's no green boxes in any exactly. of those right. activities. It's, it's yeah. just empty. And then there's a few forked projects because people okay. are random, randomly trying stuff out versus companies that are further along that the GitHub account and the open source is the linchpin of the community because it, it gives the community something to orient around releases and helping out and doing forks and all that sort of stuff. And critically, very critically, it doesn't matter how good your documentation is. It doesn't matter how good your tutorials are or your online support or whatever. You know what? If I'm building a production system that has to go live and something is not working, if I can see the source code of the SDK, I can fix it myself. If I, if for some reason I'm just not getting something to work, if I can read the source code of the SDK, that's better than the documentation. So you, you can look, on, look under the hood. The documentation can also sometimes lag the source code, perhaps as well too, well, or there's bad. edge cases. It always, okay, it always lags. <laughs> there's edge cases that haven't been encountered that there's no documentation for. MongoDB, open source originally, Realm, the mobile SDK, mobile database that we acquired in 2019, open source as well too. So yeah, we're fully vested in this sort of space. I think going back, you saying we did developer relations very well. It was because of that necessity um, to have at developers. You can always, there's a, a great website called codinghorror.com. I forget who, I forget the blogger who writes it, but he came up with this great expression. Like, Use the source, Luke. <laughs> That's where the real power is. Mm. So you have to overcome this reluctance to expose IP. In software companies that sell to developers, run by developers, it's not really an issue because everybody knows what's going on. They understand what open source is. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. really giving away the secret source. But the idea of opening up any source code, especially in sectors outside of core software, is a new thing. Right? Yes. And here's the other thing that's weird. We don't realize how lucky we are in software with our communities. Right? If you look at other engineering disciplines and other disciplines in general mm-hmm. the only mm-hmm. other places that have similar really heartfelt communities are in more creative areas right music Theater, music yeah. that, right where people have this idea of supporting each other and i can't explain it i don't know why maybe software jobs is just really hard <laughs> our jobs are just we're just yeah just so tough we have to have support groups i don't know i think that for me anyway i certainly don't understand and i look i'm in this business and industry as long as you are richard as well too back in the day there was books that you had to comb through and find snippets yeah. of code our c developers now and the fact that they can just by searching stack overflow usually come upon somebody or someone who's had the same issue or is experiencing the same issues they are somebody has answered them and given them the workaround or given them the fix or something like that. It is that. It's that level of community that I think developers exist in because I think the, somebody once said, I don't know who it was, but the biggest skill of any developer is to properly copy and paste code out of Stack yes. Overflow and back into their IDE, right? Absolutely. And now it's prompt engineering, right? Which yeah. It totally is because it's pretty cool. It's a bit crazy sometimes. It likes to make up APIs that would be really nice if they existed. <laughs> That is a gotcha. But uh, yeah, so I don't know what's the basis for the fact that we have these mostly healthy, engaged communities. We run an online meetup for developer relations people, and that's one hour online, and you get people from all, all over the world coming to it. But it's really strange because I know 
from friends in other industries that that just wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. So you just wouldn't have outside of work time. Mm-hmm. Crazy? No. And there's no, there's not even beer and pizza now. It's just online, right? Why would you still go to it? But it turns out you don't need the beer and you don't need the pizza. No, fair so point. Over there. It can help sometimes, yeah, all right, as well too. But I think <laughs> developers are naturally inquisitive. They like to solve problems. They like to solve something more efficiently. They like to solve something easier, quicker, faster, all of those sort of things as well too. So we spoke about VoxGig and the pivot when COVID came and essentially killed that in-person event platform that you were creating and the pivoting towards modifying some of that approach towards developer relations. And you have spoken about how your experience of developer relations in the previous companies you founded and the companies you'd worked with set you up for this. Developer relations today, I think, is not necessarily understood by all companies and is approached by companies in different ways. What do you see as the main role for developer relations in any tech company? It is to create the vibe that the company cares about developers. Uh, Okay. And I don't mean... It's very uh, succinct. Yeah, I get it. I don't mean the positioning or the communications or whatever, because, and I use the word vibe very deliberately because it's a gut feeling that you just pick up from Mm. all of the company's interactions that developers are absolutely core. And funnily enough, (laughs) Microsoft has always had this. People make fun of Bammer running around the place going, developers on the stage, look it up on YouTube, kids. But even a business guy like Bammer knew that's where they had to be, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not about metrics or blog views. It's not about running tons of conferences. It's not even about having great documentation or sponsoring communities or, or whatever. Those things just naturally come out from caring about developers as okay. your users. And developers might not even be your clients, right? Your clients might be large enterprises, and it's just mm-hmm. the developers in those companies that are using you. But unless the developers say, I like this, mm. sales aren't happening. And even the sales that involve salespeople, they always start with somebody trying out different things. I can't count the number of situations I've been in where my non-technical client or even technical client who doesn't have the time is relying on me as the developer to choose the third-party solution for mm-hmm. logging right, or whatever. And if I found this particular API... If I can grok it, right, <laughs> to use a technical mm-hmm. term, uh, easily, if the source code is available and if it looks like the company is going to care about me as a developer, I don't really care about the feature lists. Mm-hmm. Usually that's just marginal. That's who I'm going to recommend. Then there's lock-in because once I know the API, well, now I'm definitely not going to learn another one. Of uh, course, yeah. The yeah. investment a barrier is, there. It's not just one client, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just one client. There's a 10x result if you get one developer to like you. So that's the job of developer relations. There's lots of different components, producing code, SDKs and samples and all that sort of stuff, producing content, which is tutorials and documentation, mm-hmm. all that sort of piece, and the community aspects of running it. But it's just painting my numbers if there's no soul. So creating that vibe and I suppose speaking the developer's language and speaking to a need or an issue or a problem that they have and being able to solve it in a straightforward way. I remember the first time, you mentioned Stripe earlier amongst one of the companies that does DevRel well. 
I used to have a company, we built mobile apps. I used to put my head in my hands if somebody wanted payments in that app because you knew you were dealing with merchant accounts, standard banks, all of this process. And I remember that eureka moment when I saw that a couple of lines of code got you all of that, plus the UI and a very beautiful UI at the same time by adding the Stripe SDK into your app. And I, I think that's it's not for nothing that they're one of the largest companies in the world now because they were by developers and for developers and they got developers and they just got out of the way and you don't have to worry about that payment mechanism. You got on to create the most beautiful app or the best app experience you possibly could. Exactly. And isn't it part of their mythos that in the early days that the, the two brothers would literally get access to your code base and install it themselves for you? If you got them anywhere near a demo, they, they, they actually install it themselves directly. But how good is it to show that this was built by developers for developers that, that care about the developer experience? You see, the, the job of the developer has, it has these awful gotchas, right? Just yesterday, I spent three hours trying to get a React application that ran in dev mode to build so I could deploy it because the transpiling minification was messing up an older component that wasn't built for ES6, right? Spent three hours not building features for a deadline today, this morning. No, there is no possible way that I could ever explain to the client that had value in any way whatsoever. That's like an account mm-hmm. saying, I have trouble with my sums. Yeah. And yeah. yet, as a developer, we have trouble with our sums all the time because yeah. this stuff is so new and breaks in such horrible ways. It's, it's always going to break. Or Stripe is always going to break or whatever, right? But if you're working with a service that at least recognizes that they need to help you through those horrible moments, that's developer relations. That's very succinct, really, in that creating the vibe that you understand and appreciate developers and are building tools for developers by developers as well, too. I think you mentioned earlier that it's really hard to measure the success of developer relations. Is there anything for companies that are skeptical about the value of developer relations? Anything in the clients that you've worked over the past couple of years that you could say, there's a really good example of developer relations batting a home run, coming through something that would necessarily have been on a a scope or a prospectus of this is how we should do something, but it just happened? It's all anecdotal, right? Okay. It's all anecdotal. But you can go to the company records office and you can look at the financial results of Nearform. You can identify the point where you know, we brought on some additional co-founders because we just couldn't manage to do wonderful guys, Paul Savage and Peter Elger, both doing all sorts of interesting things now. You can identify the point where they joined, but then you can also identify the point where we got the really big client as a result of developer relations activities two years prior. Okay. And you can just okay. see wow. it, it, you, it's really hard for companies to break the sort of 20 million revenue. Mm-hmm. You can just see mm-hmm. it blowing through that. Mm. that's because of doing developer nerdy stuff and putting time into it and management time into it. But it's anecdotal. Yes, I don't know. It's it's an outstanding problem of how do you make data-driven developer relations decisions? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. And it's a little dangerous 
listened to a bunch of developer relations podcasts. There's one called Community Pulse, and they were talking mm-hmm. about some of the some of the challenges in developer relations done wrong. So one one of the people on the panel was saying that they were being pushed by marketing to increase blog views. So he turned around and said, I, I can do that tomorrow. All I have to do is a load of listicles, uh, 10x the blog views. You're yeah. not going to get a single sale out of that. Hmm. So, you know, the, the, I can do it, but it's pointless. So I think it's it was really cool to be involved with Node.js in the early days when it was taken off and nobody knew whether it was going to be successful or not, but there was an energy to it and people thought it was a toy language and then Walmart brought out their API and it was written with Node. But I used to do talks about microservices in Node.js at, at fintech-type conferences in London and there'd be kind of snickering down the back from the Java guys. JavaScript. <laughs> but if you're part of something that is just being discovered collectively. There's just huge energy and excitement. It's super fun. And it feels, developer relations feels like that. For a long time, we were doing it without knowing what it was. All that time in Nearform, if you'd ask me, are, are you a developer advocate? I would say, well, what on earth is that? Are you doing mm-hmm. developer relations? Uh, no, <laughs> just going to conferences. We're just running a meetup. What are you talking about? But now, since about 2018, it's crystallized as a thing. Questions have yet to be answered. How do you measure it properly in a way that matches up the activities and the outcomes? Okay. We don't really know. We're on a process of discovery and it's actually really exciting and there's a community around it and everybody recognizes the problems. To, to use a programming example, right? Node had callback hell and if you've lived it, you know what it is, right? For years. It took a very long time to eventually come up with promises and then eventually come up with a sync await and have a nice syntax almost a decade, maybe, something like that, a long time. We'll figure it out. But it's fun to be in the middle of doing that. It's such a long tail activity, really, I suppose, that going back to everything that you've said to now, that it is really hard to put a measure of success attached to it. But one thing you touched on there was early communities. You mentioned you were early into the Node.js community. I know Realm, our mobile SDKs, very early onto Swift. When Apple mm-hmm. came out with Swift, they were very early. They ran one of the largest Swift meetups in the US in San Francisco. In that respect, you can become a thought leader in this space. If you're onto a platform early enough, if you're into a language early enough, that you can see not necessarily where it's going, but you can see the inception of something that's resolving problems that maybe other languages, other platforms did not sort out. And the community, you you basically flow along with that community, right, as it builds. If you can pick the right thing, it's wonderful. You almost don't have to try. You experience that actual product market fit, right, where you get pulled along. It's tricky to pick the thing, though, right? People thought it was Mm. Web3 or virtual 3D environments or whatever, right? It's hard to know what the next big thing is. And it really Mm. only comes along once every 10 to 15 years, something that's Mm. actually really real. In, In the current wider system of building software it's pretty clear now that it's ai and the different kinds of models and there's all sorts of fun stuff happening there but what's happening in developer relations is a microcosm not not quite a sidecar but it's more in the space of stuff like the original extreme programming which became the enterprise agile approach right which everybody now hates but extreme programming in the early days but all that stuff that was really interesting so there are these movements in software development that are not focused on the technologies, but on the 
process of building software, how we do it, that kind of run in parallel. And I think it's really interesting to be involved in those. And I think it really feels like developer relations is in that in in that category. Its moment has come. Yeah, I, I, of course, I'd like to think that is <laughs> well, we that is the <laughs> case being involved in it. I think you touched on the AIs and the chat GPTs and every other GPT that they're going to invent in the next couple of weeks, it would seem. One of the things there is it's bandied about, oh, we won't need developers anymore. It's so much better at writing code than humans. And yeah, it might be good at writing code. What happens when your code breaks? What happens when something gets changed? Do you get it or write it again? How does that go about? I, we were playing around with it a bit. And if you are someone who knows Python, you can say, can I write this in Rust for me, please, et cetera, et cetera. And it does all that good stuff and pretty well. I think from a developer relations perspective, I think one of the things that I know about is that we had some transition year students, which for anyone outside of Ireland is 16-year-olds coming into a company for a week or two weeks or three weeks to learn a little bit about the work experience. And I would ask them, who codes? And very few, a really small percentage of the audience mm. at the few times that we've done it have said they code. These are consumers of digital technology for hours on end, day on day. But very few of them understand how this is all put together. And I think there's a certain disconnect between the use and the consumption of tech versus the creation of tech. What would your views on that be? Okay, so... Is it a scary moment where soon enough we'll be hitting the singularity, the machines will make themselves much cleverer and we're <laughs> all doomed? By the way, I for one welcome our new robot overlords. I just want to have that noted. <laughs> I think intelligence, has, there's loads of different kinds of intelligence and I think it's a bit harder than it looks. So I did maths and there's a really cool curve called the sigmoid curve, which is actually used in AI a lot. And the thing to remember is that you get this rapid period of growth and really cool stuff is happening, which is right now, and it's a new tool, and I use it, and it's fabulous, and opening up all sorts of wonderful new things. But you do reach a point of diminishing marginal returns. It, I don't think it's an exponential. I think it's a really nice step function up to some really cool stuff. We get to be in Star Trek and say, tea, Earl Grey hot, please. And we don't get, we don't actually get the tea, but we might get a... a I don't know, an NFT of the team. But you'll be able to speak to computers like that. That's here. But for you and me of a certain age, Richard, I still am fascinated that I can shout at Alexa, which is probably going to go off in the corner of the room here. Excuse me. <laughs> Another edit. And lights on, lights off, all of that sort of good stuff. The My kids, who are all teenagers now, this is commonplace. Oh. They grew up with the the touchscreens. I still remember I was in Macworld when the iPhone was launched. I worked in a company and managed to be there at the time, not in the auditorium, but outside. I could see it protected by the security guards in the little glass round display cabinet that it was in. But being bowled over by that, that this computer touchscreen in the palm of your hand, the compacts and the others that had done that before paled into insignificance with the, the monumental change that this non-stylus, non-keyboard device brought about. How immune to technical advances are we? Like, I, I'm concerned that this chat GPT and others are just become playthings and toys as well. It's incredibly powerful and the large language learning models behind it and everything behind it is incredibly, from a scientific point of view, 
like people are just putting in nonsense into chat GPT and see what it spews back out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, the iPhone is a good analogy, right? Because the very first version didn't even have an app store. Right? No. The, the difference between iPhone 1 and 2 is astronomical compared to the difference between iPhone 13 and 14. And that's the way it's going to go. We'll, we'll From my point of view, the iPhone 4S was the peak. Oh, that was, yes. Everything else since then has just been <laughs> a little bit larger, a little bit thinner, but exactly the same. That was the good one. This will go the same way. We're going to figure out some really fun stuff to mm-hmm. do with these new technologies. But then it'll, then we'll just get used to it. I suppose where and why I dropped, I should have put this in context really at the beginning, why I dropped the chat GPTs, et cetera, into this conversation is for me, there, I didn't see a DevRel part of chat GPT. It dropped. It came into the media. People were playing on it. People were putting stuff out on social. It just escalated over a matter of weeks. At a certain point in time, a number of weeks ago, nobody knew about ChatGPT. Then they were playing with it, and then ChatGPT4, and everybody's playing with it. The That is DevRel as well, right? This getting it out there, getting it into the world. As we use it, it's learning more, obviously, and getting better and more proficient at what it does. Is the DevRel aspect to what happened as an example in that space, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Here's an early use case, potentially. I, I use it at the moment, but I have to put a bunch of energy into prompting it to, mm-hmm. let's say it was that React problem or whatever, or specific APIs or whatever. And generally what it will do is come back with suggestions that would be awesome if they worked. <laughs> it's just hallucinated at some really cool setting, right? So you have to say things like, no, that setting does not exist. Try again. Mm-hmm. And eventually useful stuff comes out. and Or eventually an idea for a solution comes out. I'm not going to use the code, but this literally happened last week. It, it did come up with an approach. Mm-hmm. Somebody must have written about it on a blog somewhere that I could then adapt and use. It would be super cool if I was asking questions about MongoDB that I wasn't just talking to the generic chat GPT, that I was talking to one that had been prompt engineered mm. and set up so that it didn't get MongoDB facts wrong to start. So I don't know, you guys could do that. I don't, I don't know. You could look at that as a, as a way to use it, to engage with developers. Right? You, you have a ChatGPT interface on your site that mm. is going to be really good with MongoDB stuff, much better than generic Bing or whatever. But to prognosticate what things are actually going to come out, who knows? But it's going to be super fun. Some 14-year-old somewhere is going to do something completely crazy, right? I think, yeah, as much as school kids came up with a new proof of Pythagoras' theorem the other day. It's not us. Right? We're, we know how to do enterprise sales engagement, the fun mm-hmm. stuff. But I'm too busy looking at my balance sheet and all, <laughs> running a business and all, all that sort of thing to be really out there doing, doing super fun stuff. I, oh, I will have one other little prediction, though. So I mentioned something called QLang earlier, mm-hmm. which is a type-safe modeling language. It's based on Borg, which is Google's internal kind of infrastructure as a service code okay. system. Now, instead of writing dodgy Python or TypeScript code directly, if the large language model is generating a type-safe model, which can be validated, the model is used to generate the code. I, mean, I told you I was a code generation nerd. Where this is going. Code, now I think you go up another step in utility because what comes out of that is not only fast, but maintainable. Because mm. for the most part, 
the model maps to code that works and you have customizations. So the, the model is helping, or the large language model or AI or whatever model it is helping refine the software architecture model. And if you are getting PTSD from thinking about rational rows and UML <laughs> and model driven design, yeah, that's mm. exactly what I'm talking about, except this time, no diagrams, only code. Only code. So that's a fun, fun little thing, I think, that might happen. And seeing as we've stepped into kind of the, the future and the blue sky thinking here, where if, is there some places that you go to, blogs or sites that you keep up with the latest trends and what's going on, either in tech or more specifically in DevRel for VoxGig? Where do you go? Where are your go-to sites oh, if you know okay. them offhand? We'll add these into the show notes yeah. as well, too. Really. I do all the usual stuff, but there's a site that I've loved for years and years because it takes you out of the world of technology, even though it has a bunch of technology stuff in it. Metafilter.com, which is a community blog, and it's like a curated version of Reddit with only one set of posts and only a few. So, I'll, yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you a music recommendation for Metafilter. There's a really cool band called Thumpasaurus. <laughs> I have a great right. single called Alien, which I highly recommend. My kids absolutely love it. But yeah, to keep yourself creative and have different perspectives and stuff like that, because you can get really sucked into the Hacker News Reddit, you know, and it's an echo chamber. Yes. Whereas something that yeah, is a bit more arty and off the wall, metafilter.com okay. just cleans out the brain. Fabulous. Cleans out the brain. I love that. <laughs> so I know that we've chatted about a lot of things and the arc of this chat, essentially, DevRel, you create the vibe in a company for developers. And I had a question on my own prompts for this conversation about, is there a key activity that's a proven path to success? But basically the answer is no, given everything that we've discussed. Yeah, pretty much. It's an amalgamation of everything. Having that vibe, having samples, having the documentation, being in the community, being of the community, right? Yeah, and I think it's hard to fake some of the community building signals are quite expensive, right? Taking out a loan to run a conference. Who would do that? Who would do that anyway, right? But curating communities over the long term and being shown willing to do that and put the investment in, not having a team of developer advocates and then suddenly they're torn apart and sent to different parts of the company and then reformed under marketing and next year they're under the CTO or arbitrary changes to versions and documentation and that sort of stuff. Here's where we get back to Microsoft and the core value. I don't know where it comes from, and who had this value of backwards compatibility, right? So they made SimCity work by putting in like machine code hacks into <laughs> Windows 95 or whatever. But that's a high cost signal that you care about the code that was written before. That's not arbitrary break. And you don't make decisions to spend money on things like that unless the soul is there, right? It's not just painting by numbers and Here's the developer stuff that you do, and great. Now put it into the marketing funnel. So I think the value alignment at the highest levels, at executive leadership, at the C-level, needs to be there as well. Counts for a lot. Yeah, I think so. And it's certainly, that to me is something, a really good example whereby we talk about community, and some communities can be extremely vocal and extremely busy. But when you do something out of kilter for that community, such as not making something backwards compatible, it can blow up and backfire. 
most definitely. And however vocal you thought that community was beforehand, when you do something that upsets a cohort of that community, they will take that and run with it. And I think that's crucial. That backwards compatibility, I think, is important. And like we keep versions of MongoDB running. It's very, it's quite a long time uh, because we have essentially an on-premise version of MongoDB. Atlas is our database in the cloud, but the on-premise version we keep alive for quite a number of versions. Don't think I've ever had a compatibility issue. Hmm. that. Yeah, but there you go. I'm sure like the engineering hours, years, coder years that have gone into actually making that happen. It's not insignificant. Most definitely. Yeah, you can't fake it. That you cannot fake. Okay. I think that you can't fake it and creating the vibe are the two takeaways for me from our chat. We turn tables on you in this because you usually are the host of a podcast, Richard. So do you want to tell our audience, plug your own podcast on this as well too, so we can maybe throw some subscribers your way? Uh, Yeah. The Fireside with Boxgate podcast started out as interviews with conference speakers and all about how to overcome stage fright and speak. One cool tip out of that is butterflies in your stomach mean your body is producing adrenaline. Adrenaline makes you smarter. You're immediately 10% smarter than everybody else in the room when you get on stage, right? Just remember that. I'll take that. But then after COVID, we, we refocused on developer relations and people engaged in developer relations, people just starting out, people at the, in the leadership who are building teams, startups. It, it covers every sector of the tech economy, every type of company. And just, it is about everybody learning together. Every single interview that I do, I learn something new. Just the other day, there was one, and it wasn't actually recorded. We didn't We didn't get to it. Developer qualified oh. leads. There you go. There's a nice okay. metric. DQLs. Um, we have MQLs in MongoDB and marketing yeah, qualified DQLs. leads. DQLs, right. <laughs> this, or the fact that, okay, there's the three Cs of developer relations, code, community, and content, but maybe there should be a fourth one, right? Which is that you have to be cross-functional. So it's a, it's fabulous because every guest is doing things differently. Every guest is something new. This is what goes, it, it goes back to the feeling that we're at this inflection point, this kind of growth point of developer relations as one of the ways that we build software. And I, yeah, I, I just find that really exciting and interesting. And I, for one, hope we are at that inflection point because I'd like to hold on to the day job. Oh, uh... yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Richard, listen, we could keep chatting forever. This has been fabulous, but I think we come to a natural conclusion. I think some wise words there towards the end. Any last words before we sign off on the podcast today for companies considering maybe their current developer relations efforts, or maybe they haven't been externally doing this in a manner that they see as developer relations. Yes, there are people going to events and conferences and speaking, but they're not structuring, they're not organizing this. This is essentially where VoxGig can kick in and help. Yes. And I think I think it needs to be recognized that the developer relations activity in a company has equal status to things like the accounting team and the marketing team and sales and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, not, not in every company, not in traditional <laughs> industries, perhaps, but if you're a SaaS company and developer relations isn't reporting to the CEO, I think you're going to underperform. And with that, we'll leave it on that okay. note. Richard, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on the MongoDB podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Likewise, thank you so much. Many thanks to Richard for joining me on the podcast. As you can tell, we covered so much interesting topics, we could have gone on for a lot longer. Richard is super interesting, 
and what he and his team are building with Foxgig is very exciting. You can really hear that he cares about the three C's of DevRel, code, community, and content, and that he's a deeply embedded practitioner of what he preaches. For any of the sites and links mentioned during the episode, do check out the show notes for more details. As ever, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. We really do appreciate it. And so from me, Shane McAllister, and the rest of the podcast team, until next time, do take care and thanks for listening.